The thing about it was, it was old wooden boards with ash in between. And whenever a goal was scored, there would be a cloud of dust kicked up so that when you came out, it came out looking like a, a sweep. It made your snotters black for days <laughs> afterwards. You could taste it. It was just, it was, it just had that certain something. Hello and welcome to this very special one-off podcast. If you're a regular listener to Northern Goal, Twa Teams One Street or The Courier Talking Football, please do not adjust your sets. We are taking over for one very special episode. My name is Michael McEwen. If you listen to the Bunkered podcast, you've probably heard me there talking about golf every single week. That, well, that's my day job, but my... My other passion in life is football, as it is for so many Scots. And that's why I'm particularly excited to have been given this opportunity by the DC Thompson family to record this excellent, hopefully excellent podcast, looking at, well, the inner workings, I suppose, of Scottish football, the, the, the finer points of the game's history, so on and so forth. And there's a very good reason for that. One of my colleagues, Steve Finnan, has well, he's not just written one book, he has written many, many books and his most recent releases, Lifted Over the Turnstiles, Volume 2 and 3, leading on from Would You Believe It, Volume 1, taking a really interesting look behind the scenes at football, football grounds back in the day, back in Scotland. You know what? Back when Scottish football was black and white, it's not always been colour. So we decided with Steve's books out now, I highly recommend you go and check them out. We thought, let's take over all three DCT channels and bring Steve on to talk a little bit and have a bit of a reminisce. Without any further ado, Steve Finnan. Hello and welcome. How are you, sir? I am very well, and thank you very much for the for the big intro. I'll need to I'll need to live up to the black and white uh, description. Yeah, you'll need to polish your CV. That's for certain. Definitely, yeah, yeah. But thank you very much for having me on. Um, old football grounds, especially, is oh, it's my my passion, my specialised subject, and I love talking about old football grounds because Scotland has some absolutely fantastic old grounds some of which are gone some of which we will we will talk about as we go on but I love talking about this stuff I I admire every single ground in Scotland has something special about it something to to say about it something to love about it and that's what I hope we'll we'll get to as we go through this. Absolutely. No, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, to give you some kind of idea, Steve, so I'm in my late 30s. We'll just go with that, okay? And I got into football like most young guys in Scotland quite early on. But unlike my friends who went out after watching sports scene or Scots sport or match the day, they would go out the next day into the park and recreate their favourite goals and particularly goal celebrations. The number of my friends' football shirts I saw ruined and the sponsor's logos ripped off by them attempting to do the Jurgen Klinsmann dive (laughs) is quite remarkable. But I was always more interested in the history of the game and... You know, looking at old stadiums, old photos, old players, that always just struck a chord with me. And that's why when I saw Lifted Over the Turnstiles Volume 1, not even realising that you'd written it, because we weren't colleagues at that time, I saw it and immediately it just leapt off the shelves to me. What was your starting point for, you know, creating that book and and wanting to to bring this to the public? I'd worked as a journalist uh, in 
various Scottish newspapers for many years. And uh, I'll tell you a bizarre story about um, an old editor once said to me, you've got to be an expert on your own newspaper. But more than that, you've got to know the history of your own newspaper. So I've spent a lot of time in the DC Thompson archive, which is a gigantic aircraft hangar sized (laughs) room full of gems. And as you go through it, because... I have this sort of long-standing love of football grounds. I started picking out pictures of old football grounds and I'd find something like, in Lifted Over the Turnstiles, one, I can tell you exactly where this triggered. It's a picture of Gayfield and Gayfield looks like exactly what it is, the coldest place on the planet. <laughs> and it's... Uh, <laughs> it, it, oh, it is. Believe me, it is. And it was a picture from a hotel... It was quite a high angle and it was looking down on Gayfield and it struck me bizarrely as a beautiful picture. So I set that aside. Um, Initially, I thought, you know what, we can make a newspaper article out of this. Uh, We'll collect all these old pictures of of football grounds. And the more I found, I found a beautiful one of the old Doll's House uh, stand at Dumbarton again. And I'm looking at that and thinking, there is a strange fascination, a real beauty about that and the more and more I found the more and more I thought you know what I'll make an article out of this and I thought then I'll be able to make a supplement out of this for the paper but eventually I thought no you know what there's a book's worth in there and then the more you go looking because as I say the DC Thompson archive is such a rich hunting ground the more and more you found and I found a picture for every single ground in Scotland and I thought, right, what I'll do first is I'll picture mostly all the grounds empty so you can see the stands. And I set aside, I didn't even search for the the pictures when they're full of people. But So I used all the empty ones in the, in the first uh, book. And then I've gone actually deeper into the archives because there is so much more in there. You, you'll know that back in the day when... I, a newspaper sent a photographer to a football game. The photographer would take two or three reels of of 35mm film, but only one, possibly two, of those pictures were ever developed. So I'd been through the archive, looked at all of those hundred-nod pictures from every single game, and bear in mind, we sent photographers to every game, and we never threw anything out. We've got all this stuff... Uh, at the end of the month, it would be put in a packet. There's this month. By the end of the year, that packet was put in a box and that box was then put on a shelf and it has sat there for 50, 60, sometimes 70 years. <sighs> Nobody has looked at this stuff until I come along with my magnifying glass. I get a light box in front of me and I go through these pictures with the magnifying glass and I have found, honestly, pictures if you're an old football fan or if you're you're a young football fan and you appreciate the history, you are going to love this. Um, there are some pictures just... Yeah, you've effectively found King Solomon's mines and emptied them, haven't you? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I would describe it perhaps as Aladdin's cave. I have yes, gone in that works too. I have found <laughs> gems and I've put them all in this book and we got to the point where I'm in talks with uh, the guys who are running running the publishing side of this and I'm thinking, I'm saying to them, look I've got so much stuff here, I can't do this in a 300 page book 
And I was insisting, I'm going to need a 500-page book. And then somebody said eventually, well, don't do one book, do two books. So that's exactly what I've done. There are two 360-page books, so 720 all told, and I've used roughly 700 pictures across the two books. But I could have honestly made five books, even grounds that you think, well, there's not going to be a great deal on that. But the amount of pictures I have of Love Street and and Paisley or or Fir Park, uh, Fir Park Thistle, I could honestly have done a book. I could have done a book, and I know uh, this is close to your heart, Michael, I could have done a book on Cathkin Park on its own. Oh my goodness, very close to my heart, yeah. Because I've found so many pictures of Cathkin Park back in the day, and I just love that sort of stuff. I, I, I find a fascination for it, and I came to regard the Holy Grail as finding a picture of a, a, a real star of the past with a v- huge vista of terrace or stand behind them filled with people. And I've just, uh, I can't tell you, I, I, I get more excited about this than it probably merits. And it might come across as a bit strange to be so taken with these pictures. And I cannot wait to see this. I've not seen the book yet because it'll be published by the time this goes out. But I've not actually had a, a paper copy of it put under my nose yet. But I'm loving the idea of opening it up. And there's a huge picture of Tyne Castle spread over two pages with uh, <laughs> with Jimmy Ward Hall in front of it. Oh, it's just, can't wait, absolutely can't wait. <laughs> your, your passion is infectious, Steve, no question about that. And, you know, if, if volumes two and three are even half as good as one, I'm sure it'll be twice as good, but you know what I'm saying, then it's going to be something for, something that people are just going to have to have. Let's talk about some of the grounds specifically, and we'll start, I think, would be appropriate in your patch So over there, Dundee, the likes of Tanadice, Dens Park. To me, these are classic football grounds in the sense that I know that there have been discussions about perhaps consolidating the two Dundee teams into one ground and having a new purpose-built venue. It would be, wouldn't it? And whenever I see that happen, and it happens particularly in England, you know, clubs moving away from their ancestral homes, I, I... I can't help but feel quite sad. And it's never the same, is it? You know, Mm -hmm. Arsenal leaving Highbury, going to the Emirates. They've left a lot of their soul at Highbury, which, as I gather, is now flats. Mm -hmm. But you look at Tanadice and Dens, and I really hope that the clubs stay there because there is so much blood, guts and snotters within the foundations (laughs) of those places, isn't there? There is. I... I hope, I think Dundee will move because that's the way their, their business model is going. But no no club can move ground without giving this real thought because there are guys, I've heard people describe the way they look upon their club as they're almost supporters of the ground as much as they are supporters of the club. They love the way. That, that was one of the things that, that really struck me. See, when you show one of these pictures to an older guy and you ask him, what do you think of that pick? And he'll look at the picture and in the foreground he'll say, yeah, well, look, there's uh, there's uh, Jimmy Penderley playing for Hibs or something like that. But then he'll look in the background and he'll see the barrier he used to stand beside or the wall that beside the pitch where he stood. I was, I was struck uh, greatly by a picture of Broomfield and to the, the far away side from the turnstiles of the old Broomfield ground, there was the big stand and then there's a set of four or five 
little bits of railing that go down from the stand to the terrace. And this old boy, bloke told me how he and his mate would get into Broomfield early because they wanted to stand beside that railing because you could climb on the railing and get a better view. And he was so <laughs> taken with it. And it's, it's just... It's like old school railings, metal railings, and there is nothing to it. But to this guy, that is his childhood he's looking at, and he gets, you know, almost teary-eyed reminiscing about going there, and I used to stand there with Jimmy, and we used to uh, climb up on there, and we'd lean over there and would wave our scarves. And it's just, again, it's a, it's, again, an old editor once uh, explained to me how you look at a good photograph, and he said, you, you look at what the photograph first says to you, and then you look in all the corners, and you see what is in there, what else is in there, where is the added value coming from that picture? And I attempted to do this when I can choose how to crop the pictures, and every single uh, chance I get, I make them as wide and as big as possible. And if you can't see the player in the park so well, it's not the players I'm focusing on. It's getting in that extra barrier, getting in that extra row of stand seats because I know that that's where somebody sat. That's where somebody uh, sat with their father, their now long dead uncle, grandfather. And it means so much that you've got to get that sort of stuff and you've got you've got to find a way to use it. Yeah, the composition of those images is so important. They are. Um, going back to Dens, I've got a cracking picture of Dens Park in 1962 when Dundee have just won the league and they're about to wel welcome in a new season. This is actually a picture without fans in it. But Dens Park, that is now a bit run down, a bit sad, a bit sorry, in those days was spruce, clean as you like, bonny barriers, well-swept uh, terrace steps. Lovely. It looks absolutely superb. And I, I know all older Dundee supporters will look at that and think, well, yeah, that, that's Dens at its best. That's Dens with its dinner suit on. It looks lovely. <laughs> Same with Tannadice. Well, there's an old pavilion stand at, at Tannadice back in the day, wasn't uh -huh. there? Pavilions are something we've lost from football grounds, it feels like, over, you know, in, in this era of rapid development and getting more bums in seats. Yeah. The pavilion was a classic standard bearer of football way back when. It was. All football grounds used to have pavilions. Uh, Ibrox had a beautifully ornate pavilion, uh, as did uh, Celtic Park. Lovely things. But they disappeared so long ago that I've not managed to get really good pictures of them. I've got some pictures of them, but not great. But the pavilion at Tanadice was a, a bizarre structure. It looks like somebody's wee hoose put away <laughs> set in the corner of, uh, of Tanadice. And although I started going to Tanadice, my first time I was at Tanadice in the 1960s, but I can only ever remember the big cantilevered corner stand. And to see this old pavilion, and believe me, I have a beautiful picture of it. It is, again, there's, there's, no, there's no people in this picture, but... Uh, I was at Tannadice just the other week and you look at Tannadice and you think, right, that's where that old pavilion was. And it was tiny. It was a four-bedroomed house type of thing. <laughs> and then there was the old wooden stand that was very, very low. <laughs> and I, I got told a great anecdote about uh, you had to watch yourself in the stand at Tannadice because when United scored the goal, everybody would get to their feet and stamp their feet. But this would dislodge the forky tailies and woodlice from the roof and they would oh, fall no. on your head. <laughs> no. So you had to make, make sure that your collar was held tight in case they went down the back of your neck. But that, that sort of stuff. 
and Pataudry as well. What, what a beautiful ground Pataudry was. Well, that's the thing about Pataudry, you know, if, if we move up to the home of Aberdeen Football Club, because again, there are discussions, they're, they're quite advanced as well about moving mm. the club to a new purpose-built, all-seater, all-singing, all-dancing ground. Look, it, it's it's no secret that Pataudry as a modern ground, looks tired. You know, mm -hmm. they've added in the, the Dick Donald stand in the last 20, 30 years that sits behind the the right-hand goal as you look at it on TV. Yeah. But it, it's 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 a, it's a ground that is actually probably too old and not quite fit for purpose in terms of the ambitions and the status of that club. That said, what a shame it would be if, as it looks likely to happen, if we did lose it. Yeah, it... It does look like they're going to move. Now, you can't argue that moving to a new ground and often if you can move in debt-free like uh, St. Mirren and St. Johnson have done because they sold their old grounds, if they can move in and you can make a real merit of this and it's progress, there's all the facilities, it's all lovely and I dare say it'll be the same at Aberdeen. And to be honest, you can't stand in the way. Nostalgia is not an argument that's going to win when when the counter-argument has pound signs in front of it. So they've got to move, fair enough. And Dundee are looking at moving out to Camperdown as well. That's fair enough, but um, there's a phenomena that strikes humans. It's called topophilia, and it's, a, it's love of place. And this has been studied, I've, I've read the, study, the studies, in which people are asked, what is it about that old street and that old tenement that you love? And it's an attempt to explain this. And football grounds are a fantastic example of this because let's be let's face it, corrugated iron architecture is not bonny. If you look at the old dairy at, at, at Dens, for instance, or the old shed at Tanadice, and you look at it, they're not really beautiful buildings. But that's not what we're it's the memories. It's the memories that are beautiful. It's the uh, nostalgia that kicks in. It's the ability to say, that's where I was when that goal went in. And I was standing with my father. I was standing with my uncles. And what a day that was. The sun's always shining. You know what it's like. You, you know what old football does to people. The, the goals were never as good as nowadays as they were back there. The, the players were never as good. The wingers weren't as skillful. And it's... <laughs> that's manifested in the ground. If you look at the uh, the old shed at Tardice, it's um it's got spaces off to the side which aren't used and they're actually quite ugly. But that's glimpses of the way it was. And I love looking at the as you're looking on the TV cameras at Tardice, the left hand side above what was once the skull corner, the triangle corner. There's an old bit of terrace, and I remember. Every every week I would go there and you would walk up and down there getting a spot on that corner. And it's that sort of love, it's that sort of memory that, that is so valuable. And that's what I'm trying to preserve in the book because you're in your late 30s, did you say? Yeah, well, let's bring that down to mid-30s just for posterity. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be 21 by the time we finish, don't worry. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. I doubt you can remember changing ends at half-time at the football. No. As a spectator. No, no, I don't recall no. that. Everybody used to do this. Used to do this at uh, Dens, Tanadice, Pataudry, did it up at the Inverness clubs. You would gather behind the goal which your team was shooting towards. So you got to see 
the goals. And this happened. You could see the movement at halftime. Even the guys that were on the, the big terraces at the side would drift along a wee, a wee bit so that they were closer to the side that their, ground, their team was attacking. And that is a thing that is entirely lost to football. I don't even think um, youngsters realise that this used to happen. But that was... It was just so ordinary that everybody did it. Yeah, I have to say, Steve, that that's news to me. I mean, and I, I can just imagine in this day of of QR codes and and so on and so forth, it sounds like a logistical nightmare. But maybe it was just all <laughs> the happen. time we just found a way to make it work. Yeah, people did mutant as well. There was some, I have to say, getting on towards the sixties, seventies, when football hooliganism raised its ugly head. When the two crowds passed each other, there was trouble. Um, some of the worst violence I've ever seen at football grounds has been in the pathways behind uh, the North Bank at Tannadice or behind the, the Derry in, in Dundee as uh, one set of boot boys is making their way towards the other. And it, was, uh, it wasn't well policed. It was sometimes done in darkness and it was, it was terrible. Um, it was ugly, actually. But everybody mm. did this. Everybody changed ends. Yeah, um, that, I, I do struggle to imagine that happening. I suppose that in those days as well, no, no all-seater grounds, and I guess it maybe lended itself a little bit easier to it. But you know, it's interesting the point you make about everything being better back in the day, and there is definitely an element of history revisionism that I think is rife in Scottish football. I mean. <laughs> You, know, you hear it all the time, you know, a 25-yard free kick suddenly becomes a 35-yarder and before you know it, it's from 40 yards and it's yeah. it's not trickled over the line, it's flowing in and jammed. The ball has managed to jam itself in the stanchion. We, 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 we can get quite hyperbolic about Scottish football, but the grounds, it's, it's just so true. They're, they're special. You can smell them. You can are, just I... see it in your mind's eye. Yeah. They are so fundamentally crucial to the game in a way that people perhaps don't completely appreciate. I'll give you a, a memory that you will be able to appreciate well about Cathkin Park. I know you've written a book, excellent book, I have to say, Michael, which oh, I've thank you. Uh, read all the way through, uh, The Ghosts of Cathkin Park, absolutely superb, which actually told me an awful lot of things I did not know about the demise of, <laughs> of Third Lanark. And a sad tale, if ever there was one. I was going to say that as well. That's the saddest story. It's a club that dies of neglect. Completely and utterly. I mean, it yeah. dies of a bit of chicanery by by the <laughs> old manager, the old chairman. But um, what a sad, sad tale that is. It's it's terrible. And I was through uh, I was through speaking to uh, a football memories group at Hamden, and after we'd finished, uh, one of the chaps took me to to see the three Hamdens. Uh, the second of which, of course is Cathkin Park. So we went and stood on the terrace at Cathkin Park. Now, I'd, I'd been at Cathkin Park before when it was a bus uh, park for, for going to Hamden, but I stood in Cathkin Park that day and imagined what it was like when the old terrace opposite the main stand was that huge bank with a great big roof on it. And you know I'm talking about movement of of spectators. I've got a cracking mm -hmm. picture in the book of everybody everybody in the ground is packed under the big roof at Cathkin Park because it's bucketing with rain. It's actually, it's got a picture of Alec Ferguson playing for Dunfermline in the foreground. Oh, wow. But behind him there's this big Cathkin Park uh, terrace with a roof and 
everybody's huddled underneath it with their old D-Mob raincoats on and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful picture of Carkin Park. Um, I love it. I, it's a very special place, Carkin, isn't it? I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those places, I think, Carkin, that, you know, Anyone with an interest in, in Scottish football or even Scottish history, Glasgow history, they should make the effort to go there. It's just about, uh, I'm going to use the lexicon from my day job, it's about a pitching wedge, maybe a seven iron from Hamden. Yeah. And it still exists largely intact uh, in so much as it possibly can because there were lots of plans at the time in the, the early 60s when the, the club was under the ownership of those who ultimately drove it into the ground. But there were plans to move the Third Lanark out of Glasgow and to East Kilbride mm-hmm. and sell the ground for housing development. You know, at that time, obviously, there was that that concept of cheap and affordable housing and stack them yeah. high in Glasgow. And so everywhere round about feels like it's a tenement building or a, a, a high story flats. But there's this lovely little bit of green belt right in the middle of this gentrifying part of Glasgow, rapidly yeah. gentrifying at that, which can never change because council bylaws have protected Cathkin Park. It must be used only as green space. So mm-hmm. it's never been developed. The ground, the thirds moved out of it or, or were locked out of it, whatever way you want to look at it. And it was just left to decay. What you have as a result is this remarkable structure where, you know, the, the weeds have overgrown, the trees have grown up through the, the terracing, but the football pitch is still intact. It's unbelievably yeah. eerie, quite, it is. there's a definite spectral feeling about it. It, it reminds me greatly of, uh, I think I read a, oh, Kipling when he talks about a, uh, an elephant's graveyard and Caskin Park <laughs> reminds me of a football stadium's graveyard. The day I was there, it was, you know, Glasgow's a busy place, but within Caskin Park, it was still a bit of a mm-hmm. damp day and walking on the terraces, the, the sense of melancholy that grasps you because this once proud club who'd been cup final just uh 1959 was it league cup final that's right yeah yeah and then they finished third in the early 60s but by 1967 they are gone and but the the pitch and as you say the terrace and the the crush barriers remain and i can't tell you how uh sad and and somber it makes you feel to to see that grand old place reduced to oh like like i say it's it's a graveyard has the, mm. all the airs of a graveyard. It was really touching. 100%. If you walk around, uh, you know, the, the, the graveyards in the old town of Edinburgh, for example, you do get exactly the same kind of feelings. And mm. I, I'm not a particularly religious man by any means, but mm. I can't help but think that's a spiritual place. There's something yes. There's something in the air above that and around that particular ground. I'm tempted to, to talk a little about Hamden because we could do a whole podcast on Hamden yeah. alone, Steve, but I want to come to that last, I think, because okay. we're, we're better to finish up. But let's we're talking about grounds that have been lost and clubs to, to mm-hmm. a degree. Let's look at some of the other grounds that are no longer there. Uh, you know, the, I'm thinking of Brockville, for example, or my goodness, my, my dad is a, a Paisley buddy. He laments the day that Love Street's doors were locked mm-hmm. for the final time. Mm-hmm. We have lost some great grounds, have we not? 
we have. And I have given a disproportionate amount of space in these books to grounds that are lost. Of them all, I have to say Brockville was my favourite. I've been to Brockville many times. It just seemed to be someplace that I, I would go, that my father would take me when I was a kid. And every time I've been to Brockville, I always thought it is it had an out-of-proportion great atmosphere for such a wee place. Everybody seemed to be up for it. It was one of those grounds where it was never, ever still, never quiet. And I've got an absolutely beautiful picture. It's It's actually... I've stitched two pictures together because the photographer has done me a real favour and he's taken one picture that shows the long, uh, low terrace that was down the, the side opposite the stand. Then there's the, the big end and you pass, of course, there's a house that had a kitchen window that looked out into the ground, which I think was unique oh in Scottish football. And then it goes round and you can see there was also a kid's corner in the, in the far corners, the right as you look down the ground next to the stand. And I've also got a great big picture of the stand. So it's a it's a panorama of Brockville. And again, I would love to be there when some old Bairns, Brockville Bairns, look at that picture because that is going to that is going to stir them. That's going to strike them in the heart. I absolutely love that picture. Love Street as well. Um, again, I was first at Love Street in the 70s but as far as I recall the houses, Albert Street and Victoria Street, the tenements behind Love Street were gone by the time I got there, I think they maybe disappeared possibly the 60s but again I've got a cracking picture of Love Street with the tenements in the background before the uh, the big terrace got its its roof and it is a thing of beauty it, it doesn't look it doesn't almost doesn't look like the love seat as I remember it, but it does look superb. Absolutely, a beautiful picture of a ground. Um, absolutely, I wish I'd sort of been older and wiser when I'd been visiting all these places for the first time and taken more note of what this place actually looks like. Shawfield as well. I was in Shawfield. No, that's that was late sixties or Clyde. Am I that right was Clyde. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, a sad story, uh, Shawfield is the ground that went to the dogs, but it literally went to the dogs, Shawfield. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clyde ran into money problems and they sold the ground to the dogs company, which worked well for years, but then uh, the dogs company sold Shawfield to some national greyhound racing uh, organisation who cared not one bit for... Uh, Clyde FC and they said right we're going to close this place you've got 18 months to leave and Clyde had to leave and they spent a terrible terrible time as nomads without a home but I've got again pictures of Shawfield all of which seem to have Harry Haddock their famous fullback in them (laughs) Uh, it had a superb gigantic terrace that curved round the goal because there was a great big curve behind the goal for the dogs to race around. And this terrace went all the way down one side and curved round, uh, all the way around the goal. Great big J shape almost, but longest terrace and uh, longest covered terrace in, in British football it was in its day. But again, beautiful pictures. And there's there's things, when you look at these pictures, there's you kind of don't, you need somebody to explain it to you. And this old Clyde supporter said to me, Look at the way the ground is two or three feet lower than the, the dog racing track. 
that made it actually difficult to see what was going on, but it also made the place extremely damp. Brockville, uh, Shawfield seemed to flood all the time, and I've got one of the pictures I use in the chapter in which I speak about uh, things you don't see at football anymore. One of the things you don't see is pitches that are absolute glue pots of mud. <laughs> you don't see that anymore. <laughs> you don't see that. These perfectly managed cured pitches you get. But it used to be... I remember <laughs> I remember watching this... God, where was that? Maybe Boghead. And it, the crowd went entirely quiet. But you could hear the the players running through the mud and the sucking sound it made as their their boots sort of left the 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 mud as it went up and it was uh <laughs> you know it's like playing on ankle deep mud i've got a cracking picture it's actually of uh, uh dundee's keeper ali donaldson caked head to toe in mud because he's been diving obviously in the in the goal mouth at uh, shawfield and you don't see players that get in that state anymore no, and you wouldn't want to get in the bath after them either. The old communal baths from back in the day. <laughs> no, very true. Tell, tell me about Kilbowie, if you could, because uh-huh. Clyde Bank has always fascinated me. Again, a, a club that only exists now as a as an amateur, um, yeah. as, a, as an amateur club. But a relatively recent story. You know what happened to Third Lanark is over half a century ago now. But Clyde mm-hmm. Bank, that i mean they disappeared almost overnight just about 20 years ago or so and kilbowie yeah. which then became i'm sure new kilbowie is it not now uh, a supermarket so there is no is, trace yeah. of the club's ancestral no, as far home. as i know there's nothing left i mean broomfield no sorry brockville they preserved one turnstile and, and they put it in the uh the car park of the supermarket that, that took over what what uh, Brockville once was, but as far as I'm aware, there is nothing left of Kilbowie uh, or New Kilbowie as it was. But a real checkered past Clyde Bank had. At one point, they took over um, East Stirling mm-hmm. and they moved East Stirling's terrace roof to New Kilbowie. And this really, really did not go down well with the East Stirling supporters who were determined that their club should reside in Falkirk and they, they took it to the High Court and, and won but they never got the roof of their terrace back they had oh, to you're build kidding. a new one no. they were called uh, for one season 65 I think 64, 65 or 65, 66 the club were called ES Clyde Bank the ES being for East Stirlingshire and uh, they played it was the Stedman Brothers who had great plans and um Again, I remember being at uh, Nuckle Bowie in oh, 1977 or 78, perhaps, when, when they'd got up to the top league and uh, we went through and it was a night game and it was bucket in the rain and it was an all-seated ground, but it was uh, just bench seats and the police made us sit on the, made us sit down on these wet seats for the entire game and... Thank you, officer. Oh, never been so wet in my entire life. But it was it was a lovely wee ground, quite low, um, although it had a, a, a hill behind it with uh, tenements or flats on it, I think it was, and it, it was quite a nice ground. But again, I loved the place. You Looking back on it, the atmosphere was great. There was always more humour, I always thought, when, when uh, fans got to mix a bit more... Um, there was always a bit of banter, a bit of back and forth, and you would think that that would beget violence these days. But in those days, it was it was funny. It was guys would come out with jokes. Uh, 
<laughs> brilliantly at Broomfield, um, where the stand was so, so close to the pitch. Um, I was through there and it was a, a drich day, one of those days, oh, it's awful, grey, rainfalling all the time. And it was a stinking game, Dun United visiting Airdrie. The two of them could have played all day and not scored a goal. But but somehow United managed to scramble a goal, uh, hit off of somebody's arse and went in. Um, <laughs> but Airdrie looked like they could have played for years and not score. And the ref, the manager sent the uh, the subbies out to warm up. And I was sitting in the stand. And uh, at Broomfield, there was no room. There was perhaps one yard between the edge of the stand and the, uh, the byline because it was so tight. And these players are running up and down in front of us, doing all the stretches, you know, open the gate, shut the gate with their legs, that sort of stuff. And uh, suddenly this voice rings out from the back of the stand. Uh, this old Airdrie supporter shouts at one of their players, Oh, Jimmy, you should have been on there the day. And you could tell from <laughs> Jimmy's uh, Jimmy's body language, he agreed he should have been out there. He would have made the difference. And his head goes up, his chin comes up a wee bit, and he's quite proud of himself but the voice hadn't finished uh, he rings out again Jimmy you should have been playing the day you're just as shy as the rest of them <laughs> which I thought was brilliant but you, you don't hear that sort of stuff anymore you don't get that that sort of humour and that sort of I don't know sort of it's gallus. sorely lacking we're, we're, what is. we're missing now is a lot of the a little bit of the spontaneity as well I mean all these displays that football club fan bases like to do they're, they're visually spectacular, but they're over and done with in 10, 20 seconds. Mm. And then before you yeah. know it, they, they revert to sitting back down with their arms folded and demanding to be entertained. And yeah. hopefully those of you yeah. listening to this are exceptionally entertained. I, I can't quite fathom how you wouldn't be. It's Michael McEwen here. We're taking over the DC Thompson football airwaves for one podcast episode only. It's more from Steve Finnan and the Lifted Over the Turnstiles volumes two and three coming right up after this. Hello, I'm Tom Duffy. And I'm Ryan Crail. And we wanted to remind you about all the sport podcasts DC Thompson Media publishes. Now we'll have to start with the best podcast. Well, I would say that. With Twa Teams One Street, the only podcast as obsessed with Dundee and Dundee United as you are. Join the Tilly team each week for a football debate with a heavy East Coast bias. And how could I forget to mention The Courier Talking Football, another East Coast podcast focusing on Dundee, Dundee United and St Johnson. You'll hear from the best sports writers and guests who discuss the latest goings-on in Scottish football without the Celtic and Rangers obsession. But it's not just Tayside and it's not just football. I'm the host of Northern Goal, the football podcast that's passionate about all of the teams in the north of Scotland. I'm joined by a panel of guests where we chat all things from Aberdeen to Ross County and so much more. Brought to you by the Press and Journal and Even Express Sports Desks. Now, if football isn't your thing, Bunker is the golf podcast that has lots of opinions and zero fluff. Tune in to the Bunker podcast every week as Michael McEwen, Bryce Ritchie and guests from all across the game discuss the latest goings on in golf in association with Motocaddy. Check out the episode notes for links to all of these shows for your essential sports podcasts from DC Thompson Media. Subscribe for free now. 
Welcome back to this very special DC Thompson football podcast. Michael McEwen here. Thank you for tuning in. And I am in conversation with the author of Lifted Over the Turnstiles, Volumes 2 and 3. And of course, he did Volume 1 too, clearly. Steve Finnan, we're talking about old football grounds, reminiscing about Scottish football memories. Steve has many, many great memories and he's consolidated them all into these phenomenal books. I really cannot commend highly enough that you go and check them out. I was struck, Steve, reading the the first book, Lifted Over the Turnstiles, Volume 1. You've got Chick Young, who, as I'm sure, will be a name and a voice, no doubt, familiar to so many who followed Scottish football over the years. Chick did a terrific foreword for, for the book, didn't he? He, he did. For the first book, Chick, uh, I got in touch with him, tried to explain what I was doing, and he came back very quickly and had written a fantastic uh, foreword, telling of his own experiences, uh, uh, going to Shawfield, going to Ibrox, and, and going to Paisley, as he uh, um, insists. Allegedly that, does. Uh, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> You're getting me in trouble with him. It's all right. I, I gathered he was a Hearts fan originally, and then... <laughs> found his way west so chick, chick has been around the block with scarves yes, he, he has, i imagine he has. chick being one of those guys who looks at a half and half scarf which i think is the blight of football fans and Ooh. probably thinks yeah that's not a bad idea could we put a third on there <laughs> oh dear i think you're decrying the man <laughs> i'll be in trouble now with him i love you really chick <laughs> but for the new books um I, I thought i would go to the very top of the tree for a foreword and i would approach the the absolute the godfather of Scottish football who is Craig Brown our uh, yes. our former national manager who has played at been at uh, knows inside out all the grounds in Scotland and Craig I have to say has done me uh, an excellent uh, forward and uh, putting in little anecdotes little bits of uh, personal information that um, I hadn't considered um, he he told me how much he liked grounds that had uh, dugouts, like uh, Mutant used to have, um, in which the dugouts were really, really close to the the tunnel, because uh, at places where the dugout is not close to the tunnel, Tanadice for instance, um, or uh, Wraith Rovers used to be like this, you had to come out in front of all the supporters and then walk up the touchline to the, to the dugout. Now this was fine when your team is doing well, but you're absolutely an Aunt Sally there for people to throw things at and to to really attack when the team isn't going well. And, and he, Craig tells uh, a couple of cracking anecdotes about uh, walking back and forth between uh, supporters and, and, and getting absolute pelters and a bit of banter back and forward as well. But when it came to the third book, I thought I cannot really approach yet another old heed and ask him, because you, you kind of, you, you're in danger that you're going to get the same sort of story. So mm-hmm. I went as far the other way as I, as I thought I could go and approached uh, Leanne Crichton, who uh, you'll know is on the radio uh-huh. quite a bit, uh, knows her football, a uh, very good player actually, and is now um, coach at Motherwell Ladies. And I explained to her what I was doing and she said, well, what do you want me to do? And I kind of said, well, you just tell me what you think about old football grounds. So she went away and she's written me a piece that uh, it really has heart and it really has 
a different way of looking at things. She talks about being in a, a football ground and being able to see behind the shiny plastic and the new stands. At some points, you can see the old bits. And some places, uh, as she points out, you can go to Morton and uh, you can go to Capolo and look at the stand. And that is almost 100 years old and you can see the way it was. But I showed her pictures of, uh, of old grounds and she's really quite uh, uh, intelligently pointed out, yeah, I see what you mean. Here's where that would have been. And she looked at some of the pictures and she's comparing what, what Ibrox looked like before the big govern stand was built, when it used to be the centenary stand, and before that it was a, a standing area. And she does a really clever, intelligent, thought-provoking uh, piece for me that um, I, I don't want to say I was surprised with, but I was certainly very, very pleased with because she's done me a cracking job that will hopefully attracts younger fans in and it talks about putting a football club in its setting and not just in its geographical setting but in its historical setting and it's really clever stuff and um, my my thanks I have to say uh, really goes to, to Leanne for, for doing a cracking job on that she's done really good yeah no it's fantastic stuff and you know Leanne is becoming one of the the, the great modern voices for the game Indeed. you alluded to another there with with Capolo, uh, obviously Arthur Montford feels synonymous ah. with that ground. The late great Arthur Montford, a, a wonderful, mm. wonderful man who was a, a devotee of Greenock Morton for all of his many days. Yeah. And Craig Brown, you know, I, 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 I'm struggling to think of a, a better gentleman that I've encountered in Scottish football throughout my days. I remember when I was probably nine or ten, and I still lived in Orkney at the time. You, you can probably tell I've lost the Arcadian accent. It was quite a deliberate attempt on my part to to soften those blunt edges. I'll, I'll leave the, the, the Highlands and Islands dialects to Phil Goodlad and so on. But I was living up there. I moved to Glasgow at the age of 12. Shortly before we moved, Craig Brown came up to Orkney and took a, a football coaching session on behalf of the SFA. And I remember that was the probably one of the few compliments I ever got from my talents as a footballer when we were doing this heading drill. And I wore these thick jam jar glasses that, you know, if you even so much as rubbed your eyes, the lenses popped out. There were, there were those kinds of ones. And having the eye problems that I've got, astigmatism, double vision and everything else, I had to wear the glasses to play football. Contacts weren't an option at that time. So we're doing this heading drill and I remember the whistle blowing and uh, Craig saying, I just want to stop. I want to commend this young chap here for his heading ability, given the the the, the difficulties he, he's obviously going to face. Keep it up, young man. And that, I, I dined out on that for... The best part of the next two decades. Yeah. <laughs> a wonderful human being, Craig. He is a, a, an absolute gentleman and freely gives his time. And yeah, I'm delighted that you've been able to, to get him involved. Yes. Let's talk a little bit more about the intricacies of the, the grounds, if you like, because, you know, we can admire the, the images of them in, in the round. You know, we see these large panoramic views of the, the crowds and you can feel and hear and smell the, the pictures. But let's get into the nuts and bolts, you know, the things like the the dugouts, the tunnels, the, the floodlights that these old grounds had back in the day. Not quite the the sophisticated modern 
paraphernalia that we have nowadays, was it? No, not at all. Um, I, I devote a, a chapter each to the tunnels, dugouts and floodlights of each ground because with everything in Scottish football, everybody's got a way to get on the pitch, everybody's got a dugout and every ground has got floodlights, <laughs> but no two are the same and they are so so quirky that they, they deserve a chapter each other. I've given a lot of space to this. Um, these things are, are unique. Um, uh, I know we're going to talk about Hamden towards the end, but Hamden, fantastic stadium, but didn't really have a tunnel. It had an opening in the stand that the players just walked out, and it was quite bizarre. Whereas uh, Celtic Park, before they did the, the 1970, uh, 1971 refurbishment, had this huge, big, and it really was a tunnel that sloped down from the stand across the terrace and that was in front of the stand. It was gigantic. Ibrox with uh, that great big Struth stand, which is a should be more should be made of of the main stand at Ibrox. That is the one of the great world uh, pieces of football architecture that is still standing. It's a Archibald Leach designed stand, and it is truly beautiful and it has so many things about it that are beautiful that uh, again I, I go into chat in this chapter and verse in the book about the, the design of it but they had the best tunnel in Scottish football it was very wide uh, right on the centre uh, half right on the centre line great big thing both teams could get down that at exactly the same time Dens though didn't have a tunnel at all it had a door in the stand and then you walked down a sloped, paved uh, ramp to the to the playing surface. And when aluminium aluminium studs came in, and it was wet, that must have been absolutely <laughs> oh, the amount of people that must have been hanging onto the railings at the side to stop from slipping on their earth must have been every single player. <laughs> You hear of players getting injured in warm-ups nowadays, not so much players <laughs> getting injured walking out onto the pitch, but I imagine it must have been a, a thing back then for Dens. <laughs> it was. Um, I, I really liked Kilmarnock's uh, tunnel as well. It had uh, these very harsh walls, very narrow, with mesh over the top, and it looks like it looks like what you might see in an American prison. It's just bizarre. <laughs> and then floodlights, every single club have bizarre floodlights. Not bizarre floodlights, just their own floodlights. Um, Dens got floodlights before Tanadice, but when they came to put up Tanadice, floodlights at Tanadice, they put them, they made them 10 feet higher, which I always thought was uh, it's a, <laughs> an attempt at one-upmanship there, surely. Um, and at Petodre, really good floodlights at Petodre, actually, and I... <laughs> There's a picture actually in the first book in which the floodlights have just been installed and some news editor has said to his photographer, right, go and get me a picture of the floodlights. And he makes the guy climb up the floodlights to take a, a picture looking down on the ground from the top of the floodlights. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I can just imagine the health and safety risk assessors would be going crazy at that very prospect these Absolutely. days. Absolutely. They used, I don't know if this still happens, but I've got several pictures of men up ladders well, not up ladders, who have scaled the, the floodlights to clean them. And they just climb up, no safety gear, no nothing, especially at Hamden, who had those gigantic floodlights. In fact, I've been told there used to be a kind of uh, 
a daredevil type of mantra that went around Celtic Park in which guys would climb up those old floodlights at Celtic Park and tie a scarf as high up as they could possibly go, which again, absolute health and safety nightmare. You know, half-drunk guys climbing up trying to attach a scarf to those. I mean, they were 80 feet high. They were huge, absolutely huge at Celtic Park. What a strange um, claim to fame. Imagine going home after watching the game. How was it? Oh, it was great. We won 2-1. Anything or any note happen? Well, I scaled a floodlight. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange thing to want to achieve. I Tell know, me about the the dugouts, because Rangers made quite a... <laughs> I don't know if this is a shrewd or sneaky move back in the 1970s. Bearing in mind the Scottish football calendar plays right through winter. Tell us about what, what Rangers did. Yeah, this is a... <laughs> I don't know if this is... Absolutely true, because I've not had this confirmed. I have had it confirmed from a man who was uh, a former um, coach at Rangers. But Rangers had these really nice dugouts are built. They've got little metal doors on the front and they're, they're, they're plastered rough cast and really quite bonny. And um, they've actually got heating. They've got central heating underneath the seats, but only in the home dugout. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you hear these stories about uh, foreign clubs pulling fast ones, but, but Rangers were pulling that. Must have been damn cold sitting in a metal box beside the uh, the dugouts. I can only imagine. And we also notice about dugouts. Managers tend to not stay in dugouts. They're supposed to sit in there and watch the game, but they never do. They're always out, jumping out in and out of them. Uh, got a cracking picture, I have to say, of uh, Jock Wallace leaning out the Ibrox dugout, saluting the the, the Broomlone Road stand who are chanting his name. It's just, it's so jock, fist clenched. He's out there. Uh, just captures the man. it loudly, singing along yeah. when they're singing his name. <laughs> great stuff. But every, every ground, every ground had a great bizarre dugout. The original dugouts at uh, St. Mirren were absolutely tiny because when they were first designed, the manager and the coach, or the manager and the, the sponge man sat there. But it grew to be far, far too wee. And I've got a picture of Jock Steen and when he's just been become manager at Dunfermline and he's sitting in the St Mirren dugout and there's room for him and two other people, but it's an absolute squeeze to get them in. But again, sights and sounds, grounds, not sights. Sorry, not sounds. Do you know what always struck me, Steve, is something that was perhaps quite odd and maybe there's a very good reason and if anybody knows the answer, I'm sure it's you. Dugouts seem to be dug into the ground. Yeah. You know, nowadays they're at, they're at ground level and you've got these beautiful big Audi or BMW looking seats that I'm sure are independently heated from one seat mm. to the next. But back then, you know, we're talking about dugouts where they were dug down a good few feet into the ground with a bench. Yes. What was the, almost like almost like Major League Baseball. What What's the logic behind that? It's, it's really quite a simple thing. In most instances, dugouts were only invented in the 1930s. So invented at Aberdeen by a chap called Douglas Coleman. And the idea was that he wanted to get as close to his players as he possibly could. So almost every dugout that appears, certainly in the 1560s, uh, is, is an addition. So they cannot be too high or too, too much. They can't get in the way of the spectator's view. Ah. So Tynecastle, for instance... The dugout was literally dug into the ground and it's a tiny little, almost like a pillbox. You, the 
manager's head and shoulders would were able to pop out, and you can see nothing from there, so you can understand why they would get out of the of the dugout so much. Um, I have to say I've got a cracking picture of uh, Jim McLean in his dugout and he's giving it, he's giving his players pelters. Jim famously <laughs> his default uh, position. would explode from his dugout and uh, berate his players, mostly Eamon Bannon, I think <laughs> I call. But um, I, I mean, dugouts became a sort of side stage to the main stage. You could see the drama playing out in the pitch, but there's a parallel drama playing out in the dugout and you, you get a man who's either punching the air or or sitting there thinking, um, am I getting sacked in the morning here because uh, things are all going <laughs> wrong. But um, I, like I say, it's a little side stage. I recall the, the late, great Walter Smith who had a fantastic career as a player at, at Dundee United but obviously mm-hmm. more known for his, his achievements as the Rangers manager. Never did like a dugout. He wanted to always sit up in the 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 main stand, get a better view from the director's box yes. at Ibrox. I dare say he got a better seat as well, but he preferred the perspective that he got from being in that elevated position. Mm-hmm. Very seldom did you see him in the dugout, and when you did, you knew it's because something was going badly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, or not, not slow to come forward. <laughs> Tell me about the, the wee grounds then, Steve. I mean, we could, we could do... Again, uh, another podcast solely on Ibrox and, and Celtic Park and mm-hmm. even the modern looking Easter Road and Tynecastle. But I, I have a real fascination with the, the smaller grounds. The you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of places like Ocalview and Anfield yeah. with two ends, to be clear, and just two, for huh? the distinction's yep. sake. You know, Indeed. there are some beautiful, historic old grounds that fans of the big clubs only get to see on those fantastic January away days in the Scottish yeah. Cup. I, I think I've deliberately given all the wee grounds three or four pages, well, can't give three pages, but two or four, six pages sometimes to themselves because although I, I really don't like the notion of a wee club because every club deserves respect in itself, but a lot of fans would only ever see those grounds on away days. So I've made sure that I've put in great views of places, as you say, like Anfield, um, Clifton Hill, again, Kraken Stadium, actually on a hill, but that sort of place, because it's a great reminder for, uh, if you've been travelling, as you say, the January away days, third round of the cup, the away days were the best, and I've tried to capture that in the books and shown the grounds, like Forfar stuffed to the gunnels, when Rangers were visiting, or Brechin, again, Glebe Park, absolutely heaving with supporters. Uh, it's in the 60s, but a cracking picture of it. Aberdeen are playing them, uh, it's the mid-70s, and the place is absolutely jumping. You can see the players on the park, but all around Glebe Park, which is tiny, and all these uh, supporters, because those away days, I think they are the most memorable. There is no boys' day out that is better than an away day trip to see the football. The jokes, the japes, the fights, the drinking, the daft things that were said. That's what people remember, I think, about going to the football. So showing them, showing everybody where they went and Stenhouse Muir's ground or, or Anfield, as you say, Boghead, beautiful little ground. Uh, absolutely loved that sort of place. Um 
Mewton, I would have to say as well, was a, always a fantastic away day for me. I loved going to Perth, going up to Perth to see uh, to see a game at Mewton Park. Lovely ground. Like that again was a place where you used to be able to change ends at half time. But it was a cracking ground. I, what made it so special? Because I, I know of, you know, McDermott Park, which I actually think I was surprised when I found out only relatively recently that St. Johnson had moved there and away from Yurton Park. I, I didn't really realise that because McDermott Park to me has still has an mm-hmm. element of old school charm about it. Right. Despite the fact that they're, they're modern stands, it does have that old school look and feel. What was Mewton like? What what set it apart from the others? Uh, well, two things. It was quite low. So you when you went and there was a, um, a good crowd in, Everybody kind of crowded together, it always felt to me. And you would go behind the goal and, you know, everybody's, as you're a youngster, you're bouncing up and down. And St. Johnson just seemed to lend itself to that. Better though, when segregation came in, and I give a, a full chapter in the book to segregation, uh, because some of the fences and uh, measures for keeping fans apart was was something else. But, but Mewton had this long terrace down the side and... One set of fans would be in one side and the St. Johnson fans were in the ice rink end, I think it was. And the thing about it was it was ash and it was the old wooden wooden boards with ash in between. And whenever a goal was scored, same as Hamden, there would be a cloud of dust kicked up so that when you came out, it came out looking like a, a sweep and with all this dirt on your face and... It made your snotters black for days afterwards. <laughs> you could taste it. It was just, it was, it just had that certain something. Great old stand as well. Uh, classic stand with the dugouts right beside the the tunnel, and it lent itself to football. It had two open ends, one one at each end. Uh, great big floodlights. Uh, it, it was it was a cracking ground. It was a good place to go to watch your football. There's nothing complicated or luxurious about old football grounds. They were just concrete bowls. And it's difficult to explain. You need to see the pictures and look at that old place. St. Johnson's Pools, again, I've got cracking pictures, absolutely cracking pictures of uh, the the long terrace, the, the big roof at St. Johnson. St. Johnson playing Rangers, I think, uh, immediately springs to mind. I've got a cracking pic of that. And the place is chock-a-block. It's it's quite something that people, young people nowadays, they don't appreciate what it's like to be in a crowd like that when everybody is standing and a wee sway from the back turns into a big sway. It was dangerous. When a goal was scored, it, it was a fight to stay alive. It, people nowadays talk about, oh, United scored or Dundee scored and there were scenes behind the goal of people jumping up and down. But believe me, that is nothing, nothing compared to the way it used to be when everybody's standing together, half the guys are three sheets to the wind (laughs) and a goal, an important goal goes in and it's honestly, it's a battle. You lose contact with the people you've been beside. Uh, I've been, (laughs) as a wee boy, I was crowd surfed among the top and then dropped down to the bottom. Um, It was just bizarre and it obviously totally dangerous should never have been involved in that sort of stuff but you never thought about that as a kid it was exciting football filled up all of your senses you could taste the dust you could smell the sweat and 
urine and bovril of the guys next to you. You could feel the sway and the surges in the crowd. Some of the boys, I'm convinced, used to stand at the back and just shove because <laughs> you would start off middle terrace. You would end up down at the front. You're, you're in with everybody. You've lost your foot in, lost your shoe sometimes. And it was a totally different, immersive experience to be in crowds of that nature. And I can remember going, queuing to get out, and there's such a absolute crush of people that I, as a kid, I could lift my feet off the ground and be carried along by the people uh, that were around you. And nowadays that sounds so dangerous. And I went and found studies in which uh, crowds had been looked at and computer models had been made. And when you think about it, it's bizarre. It's There, there were terrible accidents. Twice uh, at Ibrox, there was accidents so bad that people died. But that's not the question. The question is, why wasn't there more accident? Why wasn't there an accident every week? Mm-hmm. And I read these studies of, of crowds and the accidents that had happened, disasters that had happened, not just at football, but at other places, religious ceremonies, uh, for instance. And the thing is, accidents only happen when people panic and stampede and start to shove. Whereas in an old football ground, with everybody packed in together, nobody panicked, nobody pushed. You were vastly experienced at being in a crowd like that, because you've been in a crowd like that every week. Going out of Hamden with everybody crushing it to get out of the gates at the same time. If anybody had panicked and started shoving or trampling, that would have been a disaster. There would have been a disaster every game. But people used to grab you. If they saw you falling, people would grab you, scruff your neck and hold you up. Kids were sometimes lifted out of the way so that they didn't get crushed. And it's a cooperation of people. Well, it fostered that sense of community, didn't it? You know, everyone sort of in it together, looking out for one another, they're bound by the same passion for either the club or the sport mm-hmm. or the ground or whatever it may be. So uh, that another word for that obviously would be congregation, which links neatly to your mm-hmm. absolutely perfect description of football grounds, Steve. And I, I saw the words that you've used and I couldn't believe that no one, to my knowledge, has used it before. You described these grounds as cathedrals. Yeah. And that's so true because they are a focal point in their towns or villages, their cities, Mm. their communities. And nowhere, in my opinion, epitomises that better than Hamden. It's certainly, it's the Westminster Cathedral, if you like, of of that particular niche. People have mixed feelings about our national stadium. it's, It's a divisive ground in a great many number of ways. It's also been home to some of the most remarkable moments in football history from, you know, European Cup finals, if it's not Eintracht Frankfurt, then it's Zinedine Zidane slamming one into the top corner in 2002, I think. Yep. Scottish Cup finals, League Cup finals, you name it. That that ground has hosted pretty much it all and seen it all, and yet people remain uncertain about its future. I gather there have been discussions lately about doing away with the areas behind the goals to, mm. to make it a, a better experience, a, a better atmosphere. We obviously have that new, in inverted commas, South Stand. It's, it's new in the sense it's 20 years old, yeah. but it, it has revolutionised the ground and the way that people experience Scotland games or previously Queen's Park games. Mm. What are your own feelings, Steve, as someone that's seen Hamden 
over the years and who has access to pictures of it from you know that are way older than you what emotions does Hamden stir in you specifically uh, very good question Michael um there are mixed emotions Hamden was actually in its old days when it could hold 150,000 uh, it was not really a very good place to watch football because you were a long way from the action the terrace was quite shallow so unless you were really tall it was difficult to see and it had many faults it really hadn't had an awful lot of money spent on it the facilities were awful at times um, and towards the end of its life it was literally falling apart bits were falling off it but to be at Hamden in a huge crowd is an experience that uh, is really unparalleled in the modern world to hear 150,000 voices all shouting they talk about the Hamden Roar nowadays, and I know that the game uh, that we, re we recently had, the 3-2 victory over Israel... I was there. Was, were you? Right. Michael, I, I'm not denying your experience. It was really good. But compared to the day Scotland beat Italy, uh, it was an evening game. There's well over 100,000 there. It's just... It cannot possibly be the same. Um, Hamden, from 1903 until the Maracanã was built, was the greatest football or greatest stadium of any nature in the entire world. And even after that, it, it remained the, the biggest stadium in the Northern Hemisphere until uh, health and safety meant it had to, to close down. But it was a giant of a place. Um, I've been through there uh, as, as a very young man and as, as older members of our uh, bus went to the pub, me and my youthful mates, we went and queued to be first into Hamden and you get in and it's an echoing cold place but gradually it fills up until it is a vastly different animal and I have never heard noise, nobody's ever heard noise of of a hundred and odd thousand voices all raised and giving it the most they possibly can. And I, I, I know Anfield, for instance, Liverpool's Anfield is a great place to watch football. And it is, but it's not the raw emotional experience that Hamden absolutely full to the gunnels. It's not that. And I've got pictures in the book of Hamden, you know, absolutely shoulder to shoulder, 150,000 people in it. I've also got great pictures of it uh, entirely empty and you can see that vast bowl of, of what it was. I've, I've got a picture right from the back of the, the Mount Florida end looking out over it and um, it's just stupendous. When you talk about a cathedral, it's an architectural it really is an architectural wonder. Um, Archibald Leach who designed that Actually, I should tell you about Archibald Leach and his uh, his way of calculating uh, capacity. He built, he designed and had his men build Hamden. And he decided that at its capacity, it could hold 184,000 people. It never got to that. It got to 149 twice, I think. But what he did was he would measure the a terrace step as it went all the way around the ground, every single terrace step from the pitch right up to the back of the terrace. Then he would 
divide that number by 16 inches and every spectator got 16 inches in which to stand. And that was how he calculated all the, the terrace lengths divided by 16 inches. That was how he came to his uh, capacity thing. Now, I don't know if you've... If anybody knows what 16 inches is like, it's, it'd be just over, be about 40 centimetres. To stand in a 40 centimetre, you get one step to stand on, which is maybe about six inches wide, eight inches wide maybe, and you've got 16 inches of that. That is not an awful lot of space. To be packed in like cattle, it has to be said, yeah, it, there was an awful lot wrong with it and, and people didn't like it, but I look back upon that, possibly with those tinted glasses, and I utterly loved that. I was at Hamden the day uh, Dalglish nutmeg Clements <laughs> to, to win 1976. And I've never been in uh, an eruption of emotion and just madness that was like that. Um, first aid people used to uh, budget for around about between 15 and 20 broken ankles or, or broken ribs uh, in, for a Scotland game or a Celtic Rangers game at Hamden because if somebody scored it really was a battle to stay alive and I've for instance after I was at uh, that game with my father and uncle and I lost them after the dog leash goal and just had to wait until the end of the game to, to find them again when the crowds thinned because I was uh, carried away Miles away, you've got your arms around people you don't know. You get, not miles away, but you get carried 20 feet away and you can't find people again in, in that sort of crowd. And what an experience that was. And I feel, perhaps not, perhaps sorry is the wrong word, but um, it's an experience that younger people can never have because that happens nowhere else. And if anything that I've tried to capture in the books, it is that experience of different at football, the way it was, because after the Taylor, Taylor report in the 90s, everything changed and the wee grounds all got seats. The big grounds, half of them were uh, had their terraces demolished and, and replaced with stands. And it had to happen. I fully accept that. We can't have people dying at football. That's just not right. You can't go away to football and die. That's a terrible thing to happen. No one should go to a game and not come home. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wrong. And that had to change. But as a young man and as a boy, I found that experience so, so exhilarating, so exciting that uh, you lived for going through a Hamden for a cup final or for a, uh, a Scotland game because it was so good. And you tried to almost recreate that at your own ground, uh, just giving it absolute lally when, when your team scored and when when a victory was recorded. Yeah. Absolutely loved that. Hamden is unique. I, I, I hesitate to use the word because I feel it's overused and it's kind of lost some of its impact and meaning, but it is iconic. I, I think of some of the things I've seen there over the years. Yeah, the, the, the Israel game most recently, that 3-2 victory. I've seen Scotland play for Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Brazil. Mm -hmm. I've also seen take that. <laughs> which wasn't Hamden at its best. Oh and bizarrely, I was there behind the goal in the Rangers' end, as, as it's known in shorthand terms, when they were filming Ali McCoist's movie alongside Robert Duvall, A Shot at Glory. Yes. I'm in the background there. Uh, again, 
probably a film that many people aren't that familiar with. I gather it, it may have gone straight to DVD back when DVDs were a thing, but just shows the, the multifarious uses of our <laughs> remarkable national stadium. To finish up, Steve, if you don't mind, this is the question that I'm sure you've been anticipating, dreading perhaps. It's a bit like choosing your favourite child, except in this case you've got 60, 70, if not 80 children. Can you, if you don't mind, pick out your favourite Scottish football ground for me? Right. As a Dundee United supporter, this is sacrilegious. I'm going to choose a picture of Dens Park. My goodness. It's not actually a game happening. It's Dens when it hosted dog racing. But it's a picture taken from the back of the Provy Road stand when it had benches and the entire ground is in darkness apart from there's lights picking out around the pitch where the dogs were to race. They're not actually racing at this point. And there's little lights. They've not put on the floodlights but they've put on the other lights in the ground. And it, I'd never seen a football ground like this before because there's stand lights, there's exit lights there's lights that light the uh, the walkways, but without the floodlights on, it makes the st- the the place look atmospheric. Is is the word that I'm reaching for, and it does look incredibly atmospheric. But in the background, making this even better, you can see the floodlights that uh, are over uh, uh, the wee ground beside the training ground beside Gussie Park. That's beside Tanadice, and it gives a sort of Almost like, uh, I don't know, like, um, you know the scene from The War of the Worlds where these great big tripod machines with their floodlights are are looming over the the background? Well, it looks like something like that is coming towards the ground. And it's the vast majority of this picture is very, very dark, but it is such, it makes football look romantic. And that is not a word that you can use of football grounds a lot. So I would urge anybody to look at that picture and deny me, no matter what team you support, that is a good photograph. That That is a photograph that has atmosphere. And by extension of the world's frame of reference, like Tom Cruise running at full tilt in his iconic way, away from the tripods, we have raced through this podcast. I could talk to you. For hours longer, Steve, about the the halcyon days of the beautiful game. Alas, time is against us. So thank you very much indeed for for your time. Best of luck with the books lifted over the turnstiles volumes two and three on sale now. I'm sure they will be humongous successes. I wish you all the very best with it. Thank you very much, Michael. It's it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm sitting here conjuring in my mind ideas of, of guys who support these clubs and remember those good old days looking at these pictures and I'm thinking I envy you um, <laughs> you're going to love this honestly you will love these books if you've got an old person or an older person in your family and you usually buy them socks or a Marks and Spencer jumper for Christmas buy them this book because believe you me they will love this you're showing them pictures of the days when they were young strong fit and enjoying themselves greatly because honestly old blokes looking at this book like heroin as gary player the golf great once said memories are the cushions of life in which case 
fluff up these books because they will 100% make you feel nice, comfy and cosy. Yeah, Steve, just an absolute pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much for your time. As I say, every success with both books, Lifted Over the Turnstiles, Volumes 2 and 3, available now from the DC Thompson Shop. That's dcthompsonshop.co.uk. They're priced at £35, but you can get £5 off by entering the promo code PODCAST5. That's the number five at the checkout when you go to buy. That's available between November 1st and November the 22nd. Details and terms are in the episode notes. Once again, many thanks for listening. Thank you to the guys at Northern Goal, at the Courier Talking Football and Twa Teams One Street for allowing us the use of their airwaves. Hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.